Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Look, you see they're headed right for us. Now this valley is just one long smorgasbord. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. I mean, what the hell is going on? Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Nick. We're here to review Tremors, starring Kevin Bacon, Fred Ward, Finn Carter, Michael Gross, and Reba McIntyre. Directed by Ron Underwood. Released in January of 1990 on a budget of $11 million, Only grossed $16 million in its domestic run, but with home video, made over $48 million. This is considered to be a cult classic, as they say. And it's oddly enough the first Kevin Bacon film we've done on Filmstrip. Uh, 35 movie reviews, and we haven't done a Bacon film. I can't believe that, because he's like connected to everyone. But uh, <laughs> anyway, if we played Six Degrees, we probably could connect fast. But Nick, why are we reviewing Tremors? Because I'm a big Michael J. Fox fan. <laughs> uh, oh, the the family ties connection with Michael Gross. Yeah, I, was, I had to think for a minute there, man. He got me. Uh, <laughs> Now, I think at one time you called this the greatest Kevin Bacon movie ever made, and that's a bold statement considering how many things this guy's been in. Yeah, I, I think it's, uh, yeah, from not even getting into it, but yeah, I, just from what I remember, it was just a great Kevin Kevin Bacon film. Uh, you know, he was funny in it, and you just seemed like it was a real good movie with him. Probably the first Kevin Bacon movie I've ever seen. Oh, wow. Really? Have you? What of his have you seen beyond this? Uh, too many to count, but... Being a, I remember seeing this as a young kid. I remember my dad uh, going to the video store and picking this up, and actually me watching it myself because I think it, we, he rented it during a snowstorm, and he was outside uh, shoveling and stuff. I think it was like probably 1991 or 1990, and I remember sitting in my sitting in the house watching it by myself, and it was the first time. I saw Kevin Bacon. I had a similar story as well. My dad wound up renting this thing thinking it looked fun, you know, it's like something he would enjoy. And we both sat down and had a good laugh over it, too. I think we enjoyed watching it. And it's one of those that I've caught on television multiple times here and there. But I haven't seen it in probably three or four years before sitting down to watch it for this podcast. So it's it, it's almost new to me. There was a lot of it I had forgotten. Yeah, same here. It's probably been about, yeah, about three or four years. I mean, I've seen bits and pieces here and there on, like, sci-fi or usa and stuff but it's probably been the first time probably about five years i've actually sat down and watched it from beginning to end now we should tell people from the upfront we're not going to do the myriad of sequels nor the television show that's connected to this <laughs> um there was a lot of other stuff that came out post this film this, this is kind of a one-shot deal with tremors and us uh, so we're not going to get leprechauned into this one <laughs> but uh should be a fun one to do so uh, that we wanted yeah. to put it on the table it's, it's a good you know it it, this one, like I said, it, it doesn't really have a time period. You know, they, they don't really get into like what time of the year it is. I mean, you could figure out it's maybe summer or something, but it's not particularly any one time or another. And so it, we thought this would be a good one to put on our spring smorgasbord here at uh, at Filmstrip for everybody. Yeah, kind of maybe go with the uh, spring romance because it is a romance movie. Yes, there is a romance in it, and we will get to that. So uh, <laughs> why, don't we, uh, why don't we roll here for the plot summary, though, Nick? So, Tremors is the story of these two handymen, Val and Earl, played by Bacon and Ward, respectively, in a small desert community called Perfection. And they stumble upon several difficult-to-explain phenomena of people who have died under really strange, grisly circumstances. They also meet a geologist grad student, Rhonda, who is studying unexplained seismic activity in the area. And eventually, they and a handful of their neighbors find the cause. Gigantic, prehistoric, worm-like creatures that streak under the desert the way fish swim through the ocean and reach up and grab you like a shark. 
Earl and Val inadvertently kill one of these monsters when it rams into a concrete drainage ditch, and several other attacks uh, from the remaining three follow and kill multiple people in the town until a small group is left, including the two handymen, uh, Rhonda the geologist, Miguel a Hispanic man, a punk teenager named Melvin, and a mother and her daughter. A nearby survivalist couple, Bert and Heather, played by Family Ties' Michael Gross and country music star Reba McIntyre, who are armed and ready for combat, take out another one of the creatures by shooting it full of hundreds, and I mean hundreds of rounds of ammo <laughs> after it breaks into their bomb shelter. Broke into the wrong damn wreck room, didn't you, you bastard? So cut off from the outside world, this ragtag group of survivors must figure out how to get across the desert alive while these creatures close in on them like big sharks swimming around prey. Earl and Val eventually get everyone on a tractor pulling a trailer, but before they can all escape, the creatures dig a trap for them, sending them scurrying for nearby rocks. Determined not to die, they devise a plan to fish with some of Bert's homemade bombs, and they kill one of the creatures. However, the last one is smarter and doesn't fall for the bomb. Stranded, standing in the desert with only one bomb left and the creature a few feet away, Val takes off running for a cliff, throws a bomb which misses the creature but explodes, causing it to move faster, and therefore unable to stop from burrowing through the canyon wall and falling to its gory death on the rocks below. And in a final coda, Val and Earl are getting ready to head off to the big city to talk about their discovery, and Rhonda's going to talk about the scientific ends of it, and Val and Rhonda wind up making out in the middle of the desert road. And that's really how this whole thing goes. Uh, it's pretty straightforward. You know, I think the thing I I missed about this film starting out, Nick, was how simple it really is, and it doesn't waste a lot of time getting to it. No, it doesn't. And I, to me, this is kind of Jaws in the desert. I mean, even look at the uh, the poster <laughs> for this movie. It's Jaws. Oh, totally. Yeah. I mean, totally. totally. But but it's just like Jaws. The movie is just pitch perfect in every way. I mean, the tone of the movie, it's funny yet serious. I mean, it, it gets that divide perfectly and it doesn't miss a beat. I mean, it's just perfectly paced from beginning to end. Yeah, that is, I will, I will compliment the director in this, not working with a lot of a budget and really with character actors. Kevin Bacon is a good actor, but he's always best when he's playing a character. You know, and he can play somebody that can either be really uptight or really quirky and funny. And everybody else here is sort of in that same mold. The exception being Reba McIntyre, who had never done anything before at this point. And the perfect casting. We'll get to her in a little bit. But I, I think the cast buys it. And the way they sell it, they, they're funny, but they're not trying to be funny. You know, they're funny in spite of the fact that most of what they're talking about is pretty dark and kind of heavy. But it's a lot of it is played for laughs. You say it's Jaws in the Desert. It's more like Jaws 3, you know, which is, if you watch it as a bit of a comedy, is much more enjoyable film experience than watching it as a shark terror movie. True, but well, you know, let's get into the characters. You know, the two main characters are Val and Earl. What did you think of them? Oh, man, I love them. They, one thing, they had a lot of chemistry together. Now, I, you say you watch this for Kevin Bacon. You like Bacon, think he's great in it. I think he's good in it, too. But I'm going to tell you, the guy that carries the film for me is Earl. Fred Ward is one of those guys I've seen pop in and out of different movies through the years, and I've always liked him. There's just something about him that he reminds me of some of the men I grew up around in the South, just these good old boys that could kind of do anything and real down to earth and just the way he talks and he's, he's just got a great delivery. And the way that they are together, the chemistry they have together is the most compelling relationship in the whole film. I think really Val and Earl, I know this movie was scripted before the casting, but really when you look at them, the characters they play are just really amped up, amped up versions of actually who they are. I mean, if you've ever seen like an interview with Fred Ward or obviously people know Kevin Bacon, I mean, these characters are them. 
you know, Kevin Bacon being the kind of like sexed up, loud talking guy and Earl being kind of like the, uh, like you say, the Southern good old boy who's kind of like the guy you would like to have over for a football game and a guy you'd like to have in a fight with you. I mean, he's, they're both just, yeah. the casting of them is just perfect. And I like the fact that the first few minutes of this movie are really all about them and the fact that they're these kind of roaming handymen that don't work for anybody but themselves and they kind of make the rounds doing stuff and they have a bad day uh, working with the uh, the septic pump and that convinces them it's time to go to yep. Bigsby, which now I didn't know until I looked it up. This movie is supposed to be set in Nevada. The scenery is beautiful. I mean, we open up and it's, it's Val taking a leak outside as these guys have been sleeping in the truck out in the desert all night. This is beautiful scenery. And the first thing he does is he wakes Earl up by yelling at him because there's a stampede coming. And of course it freaks Earl out. And you, you automatically get that these guys are like best buddies. They're businessmen to get, you know, they've done everything to get it. And that, to me, builds that camaraderie immediately. And the actors really sold it. We've done some buddy films. You know, you and I have talked about the different groups in the movies we've done. I thought these were the best, like, match of actors I've seen. And I really thought Gibson and Glover did a great job in Lethal Weapon. But that's a different relationship. These guys, like, we're jumping in sort of the the bigger part of their relationship. And you get the feeling there's years of history there. Oh, definitely. I mean... You get from the relationship that these guys are food-to-mouth guys, that they've been through it all, they're poor together, but you know what, it's okay, because they got, you know, their friends, and they'll get through it together and stuff, and even though they're at each other's throat the whole time, I mean, the guys love each other, I mean, to put it bluntly, I mean, they don't love each other in that way, but they love each other as friends, and I mean, they're as close as, you know, you know, brothers would be. Well, I, and I kind of got the feeling, that, and I almost, I used to wonder were these two related or something, and it's never said, nor is it really implied, but it's just like these two guys that just sort of stumbled upon each other, and they've just worked together for years, and their whole setup is they're going to go to the big town of Bixby and find real jobs, doing something, you know, else. They're, they're done with this, you know, cleaning out people's septic tanks for 50 bucks and all that kind of stuff, living, and that's what, of course, they, they come across the gruesome horror that we'll talk about in a little bit, but I liked them, man. I thought they worked well together, and... Again, I mean, Val's funny. I mean, uh, Kevin Bacon's funny in this thing, but I thought Fred Ward had the some of the best lines. And the way he delivers them, it's just, it's funny. Yeah, my favorite line by him is, we're stuck. That pisses me off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that and the whole bit, we got to have a plan. Got to have a plan, you know. And uh, I, I break that out on younger coworkers. Sometimes they don't have any idea what I'm talking about. And I know now it's from this movie, but uh, always funny. Yo, we got to also talk about, I mean, they're really the main characters, but we'll, there's a bunch of other people that, get involved in this we've got to talk about Burton heather gummer the survivalist armed to the teeth living in the shelter in the desert people michael gross from family ties you know who is an actor i mean he he's real serious about being an actor and trying to play roles and stuff and i mean he's got weird hair in this movie and he's wearing an atlanta hawks cap which makes no sense being out in nevada and his wife heather played by reba mcintyre they're pretty well always armed you know and you get this I mean, I guess before it became taboo in the media to store up tons of weapons in your basement. These were the the typical go to the gun show and buy it out kind of people. Yeah. How'd you buy them? Yeah, they're just like the ultra conservative gun freaks. I mean, the guy, the guys, they hate the government. I mean, that's the whole thing is how, you know, Bert doesn't trust anybody, doesn't trust the government. He's prepared. He's got, you know, like you said, hundreds of guns, stockpiles of food. He's ready for basically World War Three, as he says the whole freaking movie, World War Three, World War Three. Kim and the relationship between him and Heather is is great. You buy them as like these survivalists out there. 
And as much as like we're talking up Val and Earl, when these two are on screen, they're complete you know scene stealers. They captivate you, and they're just really great characters. And you know, later in the movie, when they have that big, huge gunfight, I mean, probably the only gunfight I think rivals that is probably a Predator. I'm not a big gun fan, but even I was just like, holy crap, this is awesome. And when he pulls out that eight-gauge uh, elephant gun, man, that that is just like a freaking, you know, fist-pumping moment. It's just spectacular. I mean, he makes his own bombs, you know. I mean, this guy would be on the FBI watch list nowadays. And what's funny to me about him is this is in, you know, the set in modern days. It's 1990 or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. The Cold War is over. <laughs> but this guy's still waiting for the Ruskies to come and bomb us, you know, which I find hilarious that yeah. he still is that he's that bought into that conspiracy or that theory, you know, which I, that wasn't really a conspiracy. There was a time when we were really afraid that that was going to happen, but he's about 20 years behind it, yeah. which I found really funny, but I loved, I'm, I'm with you. I love their chemistry together. And for someone who at the time had not done any acting other than the few music videos she had done, Reba McIntyre is fantastic in this. And I mean, I'm, I'm not a big fan of her show, her TV show and stuff, but I have a wife and have watched it with her and she's not bad in it. She's naturally kind of a funny person. She has a real funny personality. She's got a real dry wit and I kind of bought her as this Annie Oakley shooting woman, you know, I mean, that's just who she played and I, you know, she doesn't have a ton of lines, but she's funny in all of them and you you buy it. I mean, you, you really, those are your two couples that kind of bound the whole film and I think because those actors all brought something to the table that's different you got a real neat mix of people and it makes it going along for the ride a little little easier maybe this is a little bit too much but I almost kind of picture them as like a Lucy and Desi of the you know super yeah. super conservative uh, Lucy and Desi I mean it's just like her just like banter with them you know and just it's great then Bert I mean this whole movie is so quotable I got a cannon fuse. What do you have a cannon fuse for? My, My cannon. cannon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there's, I mean, yeah, there's a lots of funny moments in this, and they both get it. You know, Michael Gross is a guy that I've seen in a lot of TV movies and stuff. I, I've seen him in a couple of feature films and never really thought much of him. I thought he was good on Family Ties. I always liked him. And again, having listened to a lot of interviews with him and stuff, he's a real serious actor and all this. And I can just see him taking this role and just owning it because he's got that 50s greased duck bill haircut in one scene. And I mean, he's he's totally believable. Like, I mean, this is a guy that if you watch Family Ties, you would never think of, you know, uh, Alex Keaton's dad as the pistol packing Rush Limbaugh fan. But that's who he is in this movie. I know. And it's like uh, when I first saw it, too. I mean, I was a big Family Ties fan growing up. And seeing the dad who was, what, uh, worked at uh, PBS? Yeah, yeah, was like big liberal ex-hippie. Yeah, yeah, that's what he was. And now he's like playing the exact opposite of the coin of being, you know, the the right-wing gun nut and stuff. It's it's just, but, but he owns both roles. I mean, he's just, he's a fantastic actor. I'm surprised we actually don't see him in a lot more stuff, but... I think his his medium is really stage and television. Those are the yeah. things he likes to do. And I, I mean, I've seen him in television movies where he's played like the evil stepfather or something, you know, that kind of thing. And he's actually really good at it. The, the guy is a chameleon as far as his roles go, and he can own them. So, and that way, he's a lot like Bacon. Kevin Bacon to me plays different people all the time, and he can pull it off because he's got such range. As we're like Fred Ward and Reba McIntyre always play the same kind of person. You know, and they work in that role. And that's why I like it. And, then, you know, the rest of the townspeople are, are interesting enough that 
some of them are there clearly just for body count, but some of them have a little bit of character to them that I liked. I liked Walter, you know, the the guy that owns the the store slash rest only restaurant in town that's always trying to make a buck. <laughs> you know, he was funny to me. Uh, the Miguel guy who looks like just another you know hard worker. Um, he was a good guy. I liked Melvin, the kid, the smart aleck kid. I mean, I was that kind of teenager. I, I thought that was hilarious. And when Bert gives him the gun to make him run and it's not loaded, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's kind of crap my dad would have done. You know I mean? That, I thought that was hilarious. So I liked the townspeople for the most part, but I was also glad we didn't focus on them that much. You know, a lot of these movies will spend too much time on everybody else except who we should be spending time on. And had our leads not been so good, they may have. But I think the director knew that the leads were so good in this, we had to put the camera on them. But even the townspeople, I mean, it's such as like they're such secondary characters, but they're good characters. I mean, some of them are, you know, body count and everything. And, but you can almost, you know, those characters, you know, like from your own life. I mean, you got the mom and the daughter who seem like, you know, probably it's a single mom raising her kid. You got, like, the guy living in the trailer. You got the uh, store owner and stuff, you know, just how he's always trying to make a dollar. He's, you know, trying to haggle off the uh, dead worm that's on the truck. Going back and forth, you know, 20 bucks, 15 bucks, you know. And then he's charging the guys for pictures with it, you know. And then uh, Melvin, too. He's just, you know, you say you like Melvin. I hated Melvin, you know. But, (laughs) But I hated him. It's not like I didn't want his character there. I'm glad his character was in the movie. But it's like, I hated the character, and I think you're kind of, you know, you're supposed to hate the character, because he was just a punk-ass kid, you know? Exactly. I think, But that's the point, is you're, you're supposed to think of him as the typical smart-aleck kid, and that's what he plays, you know, and he plays it well. I mean, that's what good casting. That's how that worked. we got to talk about the geologist grad student, Nick Ronda. Now, I've seen Finn Carter in exactly one other movie. And it was called How I Got Into College or something like that with Anthony Edwards back when he had hair before he played Goose and Top Gun. If you want to bother to go watch that, you can. Laura Flynn Boyle's in it when she was really, really young. But she played like an admissions counselor. So I barely recognized her in this because she has longer hair now. You know what? I bought her as a student because they could have done the central casting thing of let's get some hot woman to play a scientist. And that would have been a mistake. And I'm not saying Finn Carter's not, you know, pretty in her own right, but she looks like a science student. Yeah, definitely. I think uh, I love the first scene with her when uh, Kevin Bacon, or I guess you call Val, was driving up there, and he's like, you know, he sees this a woman, and he's spouting off all his, like, you know, traits that he wants, you know, blonde hair, you will blonde have. Hair, green eyes, <laughs> yeah. legs that keep on going, world-class breasts, and then all of a sudden it's her. You know, she's not a she's a good looking woman, but she's not that. She's not the bimbo that he was looking for. And exactly. this, you know, you see her. She's got the uh, working boots on. She's got the flannel shirt on, and then she's got the goop on her nose. It's a great yeah. introduction. And I liked her. I thought she she again was believable, spouting off all this scientific exposition. She's the one that kind of brings the science know how, which basically knows nothing about the creatures to this. But it's her seismographs that are kind of a clue. Mm-hmm. You know, you you're seeing shots of those things multiple times early in the movie, and when they start tripping, is when one of the attacks is about to happen. Yeah. And those sort of become useless as you go later. But I liked the fact that they gave it for a lot of the time she's teamed up with Val and Earl. And it was a good balance between them, to, especially when they get stuck on the rocks that one time. And she's like, hey, I know what to do. And they're sitting there arguing. <laughs> and she figures out how to pull all the top of it. I'm like, that's exactly what she should have done. She's not the damsel in distress, which I happen to like. I, I'm glad she wasn't playing that role. No, she takes action throughout the whole movie. 
I mean, you think about it like her. She's the one that's driving the truck, you know, <laughs> driving it with one hand on the gas pedal and one hand on the steering wheel. She's the one that, you know, when Val is in trouble later in the movie, kicks out the uh, the water spout on the uh, water container to get the uh, Graboid's attention. I mean, she's really just like a kind of a go-getter type character on there. She's not, like you're saying, like the typical damsel in distress. But also, like you're talking about with seismograph type things on the ground. I mean, that was kind of a neat device to actually show when the monsters were coming. I mean, it was almost kind of like the yellow buckets and jaws to bring that movie up again, where it's like you kind of see them moving, and it's kind of like the the yellow buckets are the dun-dun, dun-dun, you know? (laughs) Is that, well, you know what? Now, that's one thing I'll ding this movie for. The soundtrack to this thing is horrible. It's really cheap. At one point, I was listening to something that sounded like Jimmy Buffett Muzak that you'd hear like at Winn-Dixie. I mean, it was it was terrible. But but there were I, when the seismograph started going off, I was like, it's like the little beeper thing that's on the bucket that Hooper shoots on the shark. It's the buckets for the sharks. You know, it's it's the barrels. And that's yeah. that's exactly what they're supposed to be. You don't know what the deal is. And I guess that the last thing we got to talk about if we can call them characters, are our four creatures. You know, they call them graboids in the movie. They don't really have a name, I don't think. The tremor worms. I mean, what do you think? That I mean, that plot summary, you know, I, I put that together from a lot of different places on the internet, and I saw that shark metaphor in there a ton, and that's exactly what these things reminded me of. Yeah, they're ca- oh, I mean, they're just fantastic. They don't look like anything we've ever seen, like as far as, you know, just any animals that are known of. But they look real. I mean, they look like, you know, just the way they act and the way they look. I mean, it's plausible in a way. And the thing I just love about the creatures is they set rules for these creatures and it never breaks it. Yeah, exactly. They they keep they have a way of operating and they set things up that pay off almost immediately or a little bit later for all of them. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I thought they were great. And I'm going to tell you, for a movie with a limited budget, those things look pretty pretty good. I mean, somebody did a good job in the creature. I mean, effect. it holds up today. Yeah, we, I mean, this yeah, this movie's twenty one years yeah. old. How many movies do you watch that are even ten years old that don't even that don't look good today? But you watch this, and it's just solid practical effects. Oh, go, go look at the Star Wars prequels. They're a little over ten years old now, and you look at those, and you can just tell how fake that looks in a lot of places. These things look fantastic, and you know the best thing about them, Nick. We know nothing about their origin, how they got there, none of that. And so many times that's the the mistake of one of these monster movies is they try to explain everything. And it George ruins Lucas. It. And I love how we <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's not knowing is half the oh, it is. I'm... of these. And and they even have that whole scene where they're going, they, they predate the fossil record. I'm going with aliens. You know, all that. And I thought that was hilarious. They, they never bothered to explain where they came from. Are there more than just those four? We don't know. But, I mean, they, they're fantastic creatures. I love yeah, them. Yeah, I mean, really what, you know, trying to discover where they came from is not what the movie's about. And for them, even if they started, like, you know, trying to figure out where they came from. And actually, it wouldn't have anything to do with the plot. And I just love the way they throw out the three examples. Either they're government-made, as, of course, Bert says. They're from they're from outer space, as Walter says. Or, as the uh, Rhonda says, they're, you know, we're always here. Well, yeah, but I, I love her whole thing. is like, but we've never seen one until now. Yeah, right. You know, like, she even dismisses that theory. Like, she's starting to doubt her own science. And I, there's a lot of fun around that. I love Val's whole line about, no, Earl, we all knew about him. We just didn't tell you. You know? And I thought, again, another character moment. But I, I love that whole bit. But I love that there's no explanation. I mean, it's, almost, it's exactly like Jaws. How did the shark get so yeah. big? It doesn't matter. That's not what the movie's about. It's a, it's, it's supposed to be, the movie's supposed to be fun and 
You're supposed to have awesome creatures. Worrying about where stuff came from or what it did, the movie knows is to stay away from that and wish George Lucas would have watched this movie. <laughs> well, I got to say, they do a good job of really balancing the movie and pacing it around the attacks that happen. That's really kind of a good way if you wanted to break the movie up. There's really not eight or nine things that happen that are all based around when these things attack. And it starts with Rhonda Seismograph's and when the guys meet her and she's talking about nothing ever goes on out here and all of a sudden there's stuff going on and they try to explain to this, eh, it's probably some guys doing some blasting or some of this, some of that, you know. And then they, they move on with it. But they come across, the first guy they come across is the old man Egger who stuck up on the power pole and the doctor tells him in town he died of dehydration so he sat up there for like four days and they're wondering what happened to this guy and i like the little murder mystery they go on there's that there's the couple that are building the house that get sucked under the ground there's the sheep farmer that gets killed the utility workers all that stuff happens in in really about a 12 to 24 hour period and it's to let us know that these creatures have decided to hit perfection for whatever reason yeah, I th- uh, what's great about the attacks, too, is like almost like Jaws. I'm going to keep on bringing this movie up, but uh, they don't show you the monster at first. And if you're going by like what the movie poster is, you think, like, oh, I know what the monster looks like. It looks like a big giant snake with a lot of teeth. And they play on that throughout the movie because, you know, they find the mo- they found, find the snake on the car or on the truck. And then later yeah. after, you know, when Valor Earl are on the horses, all suddenly it shows up and they're like, there must be a million of them underneath the ground. And then it comes up, nope, just one. <laughs> They don't really reveal the thing until you get Rhonda, Val, and Earl, and it's really Val and Earl who are running mm-hmm. through the desert, and they're running away from one of these things after it's attacked their vehicle, and they are they try to jump over this concrete, it looks like an irrigation ravine or something, and of course they miss the jump. <laughs> and after saying, oh, we can make it, we can make it, and they, they can't make it. And then the thing slams head on into the wall, and that's how it kills it, and they dig it out and, you know, start figuring out how to winch it up. But I like that that was finally the reveal. You know, we're 40 minutes into this thing, and we finally get to see the monster. And I thought that was a smart way of doing it. You, you wouldn't want to reveal one when it's doing the attack, you reveal it when it's been compromised. So you don't really know what it looks like. You just know what it kind of looked like before it got killed. And even then, you really, I mean, you kind of know what the face looks like, but you really just, I mean, you still don't ever understand what these things look like until the very end when you see it kind of go out of the side of the cliff. But I, I just, I even loved like Val and Earl's exchange right there. It's like, he knocked himself cold. <laughs> Yeah, and then the whole, the whole bit about okay, got got to get it up on a truck. No, I don't want to winch. Just tear it all up. You know, they're planning how they're going to haul the thing into town to for whatever reason. You know, these are guys that that they have the underpants gnomes economics policy. You know, still <laughs> underpants. Part three, make profit. The middle, you know, I mean, this still graboid. Not really sure what to do with it. You yep. know, but the, and then that's when Rhonda breaks out all the seismographs. It's like, guys, there's at least three others of these, and she shows them the plots, and that's when they realize. Everybody back in town. Well, we got to go back to Walters, you know, because they've already been there. And I like that. I like that element of it all. It was really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Definitely agree. Yeah. I, and then that's when we get to the pole vaulting stuff, which to bring that up again, I just, that scene is awesome. I mean, when they're pole vaulting between the rocks and when they jump into the car and then she goes through the back of the truck and they're just driving. And I just, again, I, the little exchange where she's like, a uh, little help. Cause they don't even pay attention to her. They're just like, they're yeah. giving each other high fives and they're like sitting back relaxing. And it's like, Oh yeah, she's kind of stuck in the truck. you know. Oh yeah. And I love how they just cut away from that back to Walters. Like you never see how they figure out how to help her. You just get bacon's look like, 
uh oh. <laughs> you know, and then you know that somehow they make it back to Walters and they're sitting there trying to explain these things or you know they're going through all this stuff and I thought that was that was a great scene. I mean, it's it's a good exp- it's good exposition, but it's also a way to set up that the town's been cut off because at that point the the roads out, the power lines have been cut, the phone lines are down. So they're really stranded out in the middle of nowhere. And I think that has to work. I mean, that in in every monster movie, the the best thing is to try to trap everybody in a small space. You and I are both big fans of the movie Alien. And that whole thing is really about a haunted house in space, right? There's nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. It's just a small ship. And I like how even though they got a whole town here, it's a small town and they really can't go on the ground because these things sense movement. They don't have smell or sight. They work totally off of sensing movement. So again, the shark metaphor works. That sonar bit. Yep. Yeah, right when they get back to, you know, back to perfection, back to the town. I mean, it's, again, just like Jaws, right when the Quint goes and completely destroys, you know, the communications, and they're basically, they're stranded. I mean, yeah. you, get, you almost start getting that dread where it's like, you know they're coming, what are they going to do? Yeah, and I mean, it's even, you know, it's Val who rips that, that uh, map off the wall and says, look, they are coming right here for us. I mean, I remember that from the trailer for this movie and thinking it's a lot, it's a lot played a lot more seriously in the trailer than he does it there, but it's, he's really dead seriously that we have got to do something because these things are coming right for us. We know they're talking about it, and of course everybody in town's, you know, they're still not getting what these are. And the one guy's like, oh, I'll hit it with a pickaxe. And he's like, you don't understand, <laughs> underneath the ground, it's going to come up and get you. And then that's when Rhonda starts going on about, you know, the seismic vibrations. And what could be the worst possible thing with seismic vibrations? A freaking pogo stick. And you look oh, out yeah, and Mindy and the pogo. Yep, and you look outside, and there's the girl from Jurassic Park on the pogo stick. And, of course, right then is when they start attacking. Yeah, of course. I mean, because that's what draws them to them. And that's when you, you're trying to figure out what's the motivation of these things. And I guess it's you could assume food, but, again, we're never told what it is with them, but they're circling around where they know food is, and they're just going to wait it out, wait for it to drop to them. And I like that sense of, that it gave the movie a sense of timing, that we, we have to get uh, you know something done because we'll all starve to death up here on top of this roof. Yep. And the thing's starting to tear the house down around them. I like that, that ticking clock that was happening, and the fact that they you know, your only means of escape is also your means of getting killed by these things. Yeah. No, I think it's, it's great when they're on top of the roof and stuff, and then they're trying to figure out what the hell they're going to do, and then the thing's like taking out the foundation of the f- building, and you know it's like, man, we got to come up with something, and that's when you know they decide to reach down. I mean, you got they're holding Kevin Bacon by his uh, legs to go down and get the CB radio, and that's when they call over to Bird and Heather, and then again they're again they're trying to tell them what these things are, and they just can't grasp it. It's like. Oh, they're, they're coming right towards you, coming right towards you. And he's looking out the window, he goes, I don't see anything. And it's like, they're under the ground. It's like, how many times has he got to say before Bird understands it? But he finally he finally gets it. Yeah, exactly, because when it comes crashing through his basement wall, there it is in front of him. And then, man, you talked about it. It was like the scene in Predator where they unload in the jungle. That's exactly what this scene is. It's him and Heather unloading every gun they've got <laughs> into the thing's face, and its mouth is opening, trapping back and forth. And, I mean, they're they're shooting this thing full of stuff, and he finally gets that huge elephant gun. And, I mean, you know that that's just bad news because he's breaking it out of the glass case. Mm-hmm. It's like, yes, the champion killer gun that's going to be the one that takes it down and it and it does those shells look like eggs <laughs> they were so big yeah huge slugs i mean i fired some pretty powerful shotguns in my day but i can only imagine the damage that would do to your shoulder <laughs> if to squeeze off two rounds like that well even show him man he goes fly i mean he gets 
the kickback on that thing is knocking them up, and you figure from a guy who's been shooting guns his whole life for that thing to knock you back, I mean, it just shows you how powerful that is. And then when it actually shoots the Graboid, I mean, you see the whole inside of its mouth just explode. I mean, great, great, great oh, yeah. again, great effects. Oh, yeah. I mean, and like you said before, practical effects. You know, they made this in a studio. They brought it out on the on the shoot, and they blew it up on the shoot. And I love how the innards of the thing are like runny Totino's pizza goods. <laughs> you know, it's, it's what it looks like, the cheese-tomato paste mix. And I don't know what any of it was, but that's what it looked it's like. That's probably what like, it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, it could have been cheap to mix that up, I could think. So, I mean, I, I liked that. I liked the fact that it... Again, it was something physical. It wasn't a computer-generated image that was getting shot. No, definitely. And then after the you know after the scene with them, I like it when they're on the roof and he decides, yeah, we're gonna make a we're gonna make dynamite or a TNT yeah. with that stuff. And it's just great. He's sawing off the tops of his like his uh, chimney and and weather vanes and stuff, and like they're sitting there making homemade pipe bombs. And all I'm thinking about is like. Man, you know, they're taking a trope of the survivalist, but they're using it as a plot device here. Yeah. People that are smart enough to mix, what is it he says, a few household chemicals in the right proportions. <laughs> you know, the guys that know how to do that. And look, this is before the internet. So he had to read about that through books and manuals. And, you know, you figure Bert probably came out of the military at some point and... You know, the, he would know this stuff, but it's neat to watch them sitting there wrapping it up and they're still talking to him back and forth and let them know they're alive while the rest of the crew are trying to figure out how are we going to get out of this thing. Yeah, then uh, then what the next scene that we get then is with uh, Val and them. They're deciding, you know, how to get out of there. And they're saying, you know, man, we need a helicopter or a goddamn tank. And it takes us back to the beginning of the movie when they're doing all like their, you know, trash work and everything. They have a big bulldozer that they use. Yeah, and they, they see the, the flatbed, and they're like, we can hook it up to that. Don't matter if the tires are flat or not. It'll it'll haul it. Then they like, but it's a long walk out there, and you realize how far away it is. Yeah. I, I love the pullback, too, where they have a close-up, and they pull it back, and they're like, oh, yeah. man, that's a long stroll. <laughs> I know. And, you know, I was like, you know, for a cheap movie, this thing's got some beautiful shots in it. They really knew what they were doing. Ron Underwood really knew how to use the camera in this thing. It, oh, he's a good director. It, it's moving. Yeah. I mean, it's really working well, and I'm digging it. I'm, I'm totally into it. And I'm like, how are they going to get out of this? And it's Miguel that comes up with the, hey, let's start Walker's little lawnmower tractor thing you know he can chase that thing for a while so they get the craftsman lawnmower just sort of running down the road and the rest of them are making noise too and i love how it's they do the paper rock scissors to the side stuff all the time Mm -hmm. and earl wins he's like i'm gonna go you know and they're they're kind of doing the macho thing at the end instead of shaking hands kevin bacon elbows him (laughs) in the gut and takes off and i was like exactly that's that's what kevin bacon should do because he's that he's supposed to be that take charge dude which is why you could buy that a girl like Rhonda would go for a a schlub like him Mm -hmm. It, you brought it up too, you know, running out there halfway, the, the uh, lawnmower gets turned over. And so the, the things realize, oh, there's nothing back there. You know, this guy's moving in the desert. She's the one that figures out how to kick the drain pipe open on the water tower. And that distracts the, the creatures, which is, was a great idea. And I like even before that, before they do the rock, paper, scissors, you know, you got again, uh, Val and Earl kind of talking and arguing who's going to go. And Earl's like, I'm older and I'm wiser. And you got uh, Val goes, yeah, you're half right. <laughs> It's just like little great exchanges like that that just, you know, make the relationship throughout the whole movie just believable. And it just, again, just makes this movie just like just pitch perfect in every way. Yeah, it sells the whole thing. And the you, they get on the tractor and you think everybody's jumping on it and you feel like, okay, they're going to get away on this tractor now. Yeah, because the goal, the goal at this point is because it's already been established that they can't go through rock. 
So they want to go over to the mountains because, again, you know, I don't think we really explained it too much, but perfection, the town that they're in, it's in a valley. It's completely surrounded by uh, yeah. uh, the mountains on three sides, and then you got the one roadway out, which is blocked now by the rubble that the graboids caused. So they're now they're deciding, hey, let's get to the mountains. We'll, you know, go and we'll hike through them. It's solid granite. We'll get over to the next town and, you know, get to the authorities or whatever the heck they're going to do when they get out of there. So we're get, we get them in the tractor, and they're decided, no, we got to go pick up uh, Bird and Heather. And again, another great exchange between, you know, Heather and Bert when they're up there, when they're, like, putting the guns to them, and they're like, you know, what gun should I take? Should I take this one or this one? And they're just, just awesome stuff. I mean. Oh, yeah. It's, it's such good little moments, and it's all moving fast. And we get on the tractor, and we think they're going to get away. But, okay, so there's two left, and you see them off in the distance doing something, and everybody's like, I don't care what they're doing as long as they're doing it over there. You know, and they figure they're just tearing the town down, right? Hunting them. But all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the tractor just takes a nosedive. And it's like these things have figured out how to dig a trench to loosen the dirt and trap that tractor from moving. And I thought, wow, now you've given the creatures another element that at least one of them is smart enough to figure stuff out. Yeah, which they were kind of hinting at before. I mean, when they were, the thing was like reading the house, as they were saying, when it was kind of like taking out its tongues and like, you know, kind of feeling the, the foundation and then actually knocking out the foundation. I mean, they're yeah. kind of establishing that these things, you know, they're not stupid animals. I mean, this thing isn't, you know, I don't know, it's not a grizzly bear out there. I mean, this thing actually has a little bit of intelligence to it. And I like the fact that these things have a learning capability. And they're able to figure stuff out, and that's really smart. It's just a little stuff. You know, like you say, you could just look at that thing as it's just feeling around for somebody on the porch, but you're right. What it's doing is feeling, where's the foundation? Oh, it's this one. And it yanks it out, and I love that. It, it makes the monster movie so much more enjoyable when you don't have to completely dismiss and go with the conceit of, okay, it's a monster that's going to eat us But But also, like I was saying in the beginning, is, you know, they set the rules for these monsters, and even though, yeah, it set a trap for it in the end, it's not like it's completely out of left field here. I mean, they were setting it up the whole time that at least one of them, I think, you know, we're going to call him Stumpy, was, you know, kind of the leader, kind of, you know, the smart one of the group. And he was yeah. the one that probably, you know, was the one that decided to build a trench underneath there. And the other one was way out in the distance getting their direction, you know, getting their attention, saying, you know, yeah, well, he'll stay over there. We're going to stay over here. Well, that was the plan. It, it set the other one over there, so they would stay away from it or, you know, keep staying away from it. So they keep on going on the path. And then after, you know, when the, the bulldozer ends up going in, they decide, you know, hey, we got to make run for the rocks over there because they stay in that trailer that they're dragging. They're, you know, they're dead meat. That thing's going to tear it up beneath them. Exactly. And they wind up on the rocks. And again, they're trapped on the rocks. And this whole, you know, Bert goes into this whole bit about... It's the starvation. It's coming. You know, he's such a defeatist, you know, yeah. and he, he's like, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. Comes down to that. I'm walking out there with one of these things. He's holding one of the bombs lit and just letting them take me down while it's going. Yep. And that gives Earl the idea of, huh, I wonder if we can get one of them's attention and throw it at it and see if it'll eat it. And he does the whole lasso bit. I, I thought that was a cool setup. Yep. And again, just like with Jaws, they're throwing chum out there with throwing the rocks trying to get its attention, trying to get it where it needs to. And, you know, of course, you get Earl doing it first, you know, and he throws it out there, and he's kind of walking it back. And the first one, the dumb one, takes it down. And, man, do you get a cool effect there with it all exploding and oh, yeah. the guts landing all over him. And it's it's done in such a great way where it's serious, yet it's so funny. You know, they got the guts on them, and they're, you know, 
smacking their hands down and all things coming off of them. Oh, yeah. Well, the, the funny thing is Melvin's laying there in the rock like, yeah. And he just gets covered in. He's like, thanks. You know, which I, I mean, again, it's one of those funny moments that is that levity to the whole story that really works. And they try it again. But the last one, Stumpy, the one who's had a tongue ripped off on the truck earlier, that the one that Walter was trying to take pictures with takes the bait, but then spits it back at him. And this look on everybody's face is like, oh. <laughs> and, um, but, and, you know, Bacon's got another one in his hand, but the thing lands, of course, right on the back of the other one. So everybody sends running, and huge explosion, of course, you know. And I, I love it then next, you know, as soon as, you know, the dust clears and everything, and they're, everybody's back on the rocks, and they look, and, of course, our three main characters, Rhonda, Earl, and Val, are you know, country mile off the rocks. And they're like, what are you guys doing out there? It's a, yeah, I'm like, how did y'all get that far away? But it's almost like those three are in a Mexican standoff with the last gravel, mm-hmm. you know, because they're all standing there and, they, you know, Val and Earl look at each other like, okay, what are we going to do? And the thing comes right up in front of them. Mm-hmm. They, they think they can throw, you know, throw it off and it doesn't work. And Val's like, no, this one ain't dumb. He's figured it out, too, that this one knows what it's doing. And so he comes up. I, mean, I love the, how he comes up with the plan. They're like, okay, what are we going to do? He's like, I'm going to go for it. He's like, go for what? And he just takes <laughs> off running. <laughs> I got myself a plan. <laughs> it was hilarious. But all that was set up earlier because when they threw one of the bombs, it sent the two of them running real fast. I love how that is set up. Again, it's one of those set up and payoffs. And he's running and Earl's running beside him. And uh, Rhonda realizes I've got the cigarette lighter for some reason. And she runs after him and they, they you know get at the end of the cliff there. And he tears off the fuse and lights it throws it i mean how did you like the whole ending because i thought at first i was like he's going to throw this thing it's going to jump up grab it and explode but his plan's actually smarter than that. oh yeah i mean again it's almost like jaws the thing's coming right at him and he's just got he's got you know one shot left to do it and he does it i mean he just you know throws it behind yeah. it he knows what's going to happen and like like in jaws they set it up before those tanks will explode and here you know they set it up before you throw it the sound of it's going to scare it away because those things are have such acute senses that that loud explosion yeah, I, is going to send that thing, just like them on the rocks, going to send them way the hell off of there fast. And I think it's just, it's great too. I mean, you get his look on his face, everybody kind of goes aside. You get that heroic moment where it's coming right at him. You got the music blaring, and he jumps right at the last second, I mean, to get out of the way. Even though at that point, I don't think he even had to stand in front of them because it was, it, it yeah, was going full blast yeah. no matter if he was there or there was nothing there. And that's the thing that they know that it doesn't know is that there's an end to this dirt you're crawling through. And the thing, of course, goes through it. And, I mean, in just the big, gory death, you know, falls on the rocks and crushes. Now, the funny part to me is everybody who's like 200 yards away on the rocks is cheering. How do they know what even happened? <laughs> so I was like, hey, that seems a little weird. Did y'all get to see this? I mean, how, how did y'all know? But, uh, but you know, you give the movie that because that's what you want. That's the big cheering moment at the end. And uh, you want to love it. I mean, it's such a good ending. And it's the whole, I'll, it pays off that whole bit. He woke up Earl by saying, ah, it's a stampede, right? And he just looks at him and says, well, I just kind of thought, stampede. <laughs> then you get the little coda ending where they're all, you know, they're still packing up, ready to go. And Rhonda's going to go her way. And of course, you know, Earl the whole time has been like, dude, you need to drop this list you've got and just, you know, be more realistic. And I love how at the end of it, he just walks up to her and is like, uh, I just, uh, and it just grabs her and kisses her. And I was like, yeah, that's, that's how you want these movies to end. These, you know, these sixties and fifties B monster movies always ended with the guy grabbing the dame and kissing her. Yeah. Just a, just a perfect ending too. And it's, 
you know, like the whole thing too is before they're talking about like the get you know the get rich quick schemes and stuff, and you know uh, Val's like you know People magazine, and then you know Earl's like I ah, forget that National Geographic, and sure enough, at the end they give you a National Geographic with the find. Yeah, no, I love Val's whole bit about we can make it in People magazine. <laughs> <laughs> people, like, man, I was like, wow, but you know, back when people did stuff besides the Kardashian pregnancies, yeah. you know, they they did have some interesting stories in it. So yeah, I I, I loved it though. I mean, it was, again, it's it's a short film, but it's a good ride and. It ends in a pretty satisfying way, and it is. Then they kick up a Reba McIntyre song, <laughs> just out of nowhere. I'm like, that must have been in her contract. Like, well, I'll do this stupid thing, but you gotta let one of my tunes be the end credits. <laughs> and you know, and I mean, it's not even one of her better ones, but yeah. it it works for this film. So Nick, we're at the part of the podcast where we give our final recommendations and popcorn ratings. So, what is your final recommendation and popcorn rating for Tremors? Huge recommendation, the biggest I can give, and I'm gonna give it an extra large popcorn. And I'm with you. Such a fun movie. I mean, it's a B movie all the way. Let's, let's not make any mistake about it. But it excels at being that. And in that case, it's a lot of fun. It's really interesting to watch. And I'm going to join you extra large with butter, man. I like this movie. It's it's a blast. And, you know, thankfully, it's not that hard to find these days. Yeah, actually, uh, the uh, to all the listeners that uh, don't own this, uh, Attack Pack, all four movies, $10. $2.50 a movie. And... You can't even find Trimmers by itself for ten dollars. So you think about it; it's a movie, and you get you get all the extra movies as extras, and you know a couple of the sequels aren't too bad. They know what they the movies know what they are, and they have fun doing it. Well, you know what, Nick, you have started a new feature on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com/slash/movies. Nick's picks, where you do some blogging about uh, some of the television shows you watch, The Walking Dead's what you're writing about now. So I'm going to put the challenge to you: if you watch those sequels, do a short, you know, written movie review of them, throw them out there. We'll put them on the Facebook page too, and people can uh, read your comments on them. And if one of them is really worthy of it, we may crank it back up and uh, see if we do another podcast. I said before we weren't going to do all of them, but I'll leave your judgment on that if you think it's good enough. Folks, thanks so much for joining us. Really appreciate you uh, downloading this episode. You can find more episodes in the archive section of our website. You can also connect to our social media there, Facebook, Twitter. You can uh, follow us all there. Leave us comments. Let us know what you think. Leave us a comment on iTunes. We really appreciate it. And check out Nick's uh, new blog. And look, got a lot of cool stuff coming up for you this spring and summer. So hang in there with us. We really appreciate your support. You can also check out, if you're a Buffy the Vampire Slayer fan, The Art of Slaying. We're in the middle of Season 4 releases right now. You can check out those. We've got three seasons full of episodes for you, all for your download pleasure. Again, until next time, for Nick, I'm Jay. Thanks for tuning in to Filmstrip. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. We killed it. Visit our website, continuousplaypodcast.com, for more reviews and episodes. Catch you later, Chang. You gotta schedule the key. Oh, yeah. See, we plan ahead. That way we don't do anything right now. Earl, explain it to me. All content used or discussed in this podcast are the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17. 